Today we'll be discussing comedy and artificial intelligence, and then we'll be discussing medicine and artificial intelligence. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Doctor Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, I'll be asking Ali about the implications for artificial intelligence on comedy, and we'll be discussing the future of artificial intelligence, also called AI, Ali, in case you didn't know, and medicine. Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. Unlike the Steven Spielberg film from several years ago, which very divisive film. I don't like it, but lots of people say it's amazing. No, AI. (laughs) I get it. Okay, Ali, let's get right into this. We have so much to talk about. So I want to ask you about comedy And artificial intelligence, you know, is it putting you out of a job? What's going on with this? But before that, maybe we should just take a step back. I love taking a step back. You know that? I say that's one of my catchphrases. It's not really catchphrase because everybody (laughs) says the term, but I always say that. Let's take a step back and talk about what we're talking about. So I was talking with my wife the other day. I was trying to explain to her this concept of artificial intelligence. Because say we're using a computer program like electronic medical health record. And, And, of course, the second half of this is going to be all about medicine. But... You know, a pop-up may come up saying, oh, hey, you know, remember to always order blood work in this certain disease. But it doesn't know about the patient that I'm looking at. It's just a pop-up that's programmed into it. What we're talking about when we talk about AI is learning that goes on in the machine level. So as time goes on, the computer learns what's going on and adapts its behavior based on what it's seen. And it also uses many, many data points to help inform its behavior. And so because of this, it can learn over time. And as technology has gone up and computing power has gone up, we've had more and more sophisticated AI. And that's basically what it is. So it's machine learning at the computer level. And like I said, I'll give you some examples when we get to the medicine aspect. But then there's also this chat GPT app that everybody talks about, right, Ali? ChatGPT. And I also, I just want to assure our listeners that Asif is live and here. He's not a robot. I know that a lot of our listeners are concerned that Asif is a robot. Yeah, because I'm emotionally cold to my family. Yeah, when I say our listeners, I mean his family. Asif, I'm talking to you live. You are a real human being. I'm going to tell you that this has been coming across my radar, both as a comedian and as a teacher. This is where these are like I wouldn't say the highest concerns, but certainly academically, it's a big concern. So ChatGPT is a program. It's an AI program. It's trained to generate realistic human text. So it can create an article. It can write an article. It can write poetry. It can write a story. It can write a news report. It can write dialogue in a script. And it can do that by you just inputting a small amount of text and the AI chat GPT can give you back an output, a large amount of quality copy, quality being the key concerning word for people, I think. So I'll give you an example of something that we, in the Atlantic, in this article here, there was a student handed in an essay with the following opening paragraph. The construct of learning styles is problematic because it fails to account for the processes through which learning styles are shaped. Some students might develop a particular learning style because they have had particular experiences. Others might develop a particular learning style by trying to accommodate to a learning environment that was not well suited to their learning needs. Ultimately, we need to understand the interactions among learning styles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Doesn't sound like a robot. That sounds like an essay that could be written by a human. As as the writer of this article says, you know, it reads a little bit like filler, but so do most student essays. I Their it was opinions pretty good. don't come. You know, on. I have a master's yeah. in education. Some people don't know that. You mention that every third episode. So, way to keep our listeners on track. God forbid they forget that. That's right. And I thought that was pretty good. I thought I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, you can't tell. I guess that's the whole can't point. Can't tell. And you know, we'll get to education in a moment. 
That's where most of the problems lie, I suppose. But let's just talk about comedy for a second. I did a show recently called Because News. Because News is a CBC radio show. It's comedians or comedic performers, three of them who get together and they either debate about the news or they get points based on how much they know in the news. I typically don't do that well on mm, Because News, okay. but I won this episode what? and I, I won because of what I knew about ChatGPT. It's a, something that's come across my radar, both through academia and through comedy. So the let me just give you a couple of ideas of what this thing is capable of, okay? So they asked us, all three of us, let's say, you know, one of the performers, a guy named Craig Lozon, fantastic performer, he does a great Donald Trump impersonation. And so Craig did his version. How would you describe a Granny Smith apple in the voice of Donald Trump? He did his, and then ChatGPT did theirs, which was quite good, actually. It was, I'll just read it out to you here. Let me tell you something. Granny Smith apples, they're huge. Believe me, the biggest, most beautiful apples you've ever seen. And the green color, it's fantastic. Just fantastic. They're so crisp and delicious. Nobody has better apples than us. Right? So, okay, Donald Trump, there's a million versions of Donald Trump. You're like, okay, you know, maybe maybe you could have written that too. Then explain reproduction in the style of Mary Poppins. Okay. Emma Hunter, another wonderful performer, actor, does a great Mary Poppins, so I don't. So anyway, well, my dear, reproduction is the process by which living things create new life. In the case of humans, it's a bit like a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. It may seem like a lot of work, but trust me, it's worth it. So that's the chat GPT answer. Now, here's the one I want to get to. They ask me, because of my love for food, I'm touring a show called Does This Taste Funny? They ask, hey, write four lines of a sonnet about hamburgers. So first of all, I look up, you know, the classic sonnet, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. So I, I write it in that style. I go, uh, shall I compare thee to a burger of ham? Thou hast mustard, pickle, and onion, but never ketchup, mayo, or jam. Don't step on my bunion. Look, I, there's not much that rhymes with onion. I painted myself into a corner. But he, check out Chat GPT. And I mean, I mean, look, I spent like 10 minutes on mine. This came out in under two seconds. Oh, juicy beef with seasoning so bold. Thy taste doth make my senses all behold. With lettuce, cheese, and ketchup all so hued. A masterpiece of food so well imbued. I mean, you give me a month, I'm not doing anything as good as that. Now, granted, I, I'm no poet, you know, but that's, you see that and now you're like, okay, should I be concerned? Should I not be concerned? For those who want to be concerned, you're at liberty to be, you know, feel whatever you want to feel. An article in Time Magazine will only make you feel more concerned. The Time Magazine article is about a comedy robot. So, you know, the mind of this robot is an AI, but it's actually a small bodied robot with arms and a you know a voice and a small face. A little bit of the vibe from what was that movie, the Disney movie where the short robot circuit. Could... No, oh, no. Dude. I, I, this is Johnny? No? Okay, no, you're talking about Wally. Wally. Had a bit of a Wally vibe to it. Now, for all the creativity in the world of AI, a human Name the robot John, John the robot. I mean, somehow that feels like it's, it just feels underwhelming. I don't know, with everything this thing is capable of. So you read this article and it's, uh, just to give you know, credit where it's due, John is the brainchild of a professor named Naomi Fitter. Professor Fitter is at the School of Mechanical, Industrial and Manufacturing Engineering at Oregon State. And she created this tiny Android. The Android, you have to hold the mic close to them, press a button. And at first it was something that just told the jokes the same way you told the jokes. But as you said, an AI learns, an AI adapts. So the robot is at a point, although it hasn't performed much, it was, this is all pre-pandemic. It's learned how to respond to an audience. So now it can very delivery depending if the audience is laughing it'll slow down its delivery for so people to catch up or not deliver just yet it's not just do you know what i mean just generating joke after joke it slows down okay they're laughing i'll be quiet let the laughter subside then i'll start the new joke the joke doesn't work 
It has a response to stuff like that. Oh, I'm sorry about that. I think I got caught in a loop. Please tell the booking agents that you like me, that you like me, that you like me, right? It does a loop. It has this kind of thing. If it gets a roar of laughter, it has a response to that. Please tell the booking agents how funny that joke was, right? It's like really got this kind of stuff. And then here's the interesting thing that's a little bit cruel. There's a final line, like sort of a parting line that it has because as this article suggests, comedy writing, comedy is often full of formulas. Not always, but you know, you have certain formula. You use a rule of three, you use a callback. Sometimes it's even more overt with Jeff Foxworthy has, you might be a redneck if, right? And some of the other guys, you know, th- th- there's a, a number of these sort of comedians who have their own formula set out. But the AI here, or, you know, Rodney Dangerfield had, I get no respect. I tell you, I get no respect. And it was that whole kind of thing. This AI signs off after the end of every show. I guess the the engineers don't seem to think that it's super threatening, but they always have it sign off with the words, if you like me, please book me and help me take your jobs. So it feels cruel if you're the one who's worried about your job being taken, but it also speaks to how... You know, engineers, I I don't think they're known for their cruelty. I think they feel like this is just something that, you know, is fun and funny and a great way to show the power of AI. And I think that is the conversation. What is the power of AI? Like one of the guys, one of the engineers in this Time article was talking about like, he sees it like this electric guitar, like the rise of the electric guitar. At first it came out, it's got these weird sounds, it's distorted. Who's going to play this thing? And then all of a sudden, Jimi Hendrix gets his hands on an electric guitar and people go, oh, okay, that's the potential of this thing, right? He says that's what they feel like as they're building this AI. So a good friend of mine, Dinesh, was telling me, talking to me about this the other day. He had a song he was sitting with for 12 years. Okay, He was sitting on this. He had it in his mind. He couldn't get... The chorus. He's a musician, I guess. Verse. He's not a musician. He's he's many things, but he also, he's a very creative human being, and he wanted to write this song. This was something he wanted. And he couldn't get it. 12 years, it's just like kind of sitting there, inputs it in the AI, and the AI, you know, spits back the song he's been trying to create for over a decade. So I asked him, like, what do you feel about that? Like, will songwriters be out of a job? And he said... I view this as a tool like anything else. Sometimes you need that help. You know, he goes, I don't feel like it can replicate songwriting. That said, there are more versions of ChatGPT coming up, you know? And in fact, if anybody's wondering, is this thing popular? My friend Phil at Because News, one of the producers of the show, was like, the service is down a lot right now because too many people are trying to use it. So yes, it's being used. It's very popular. And we did something, Asif, with our, with our friends, you know, a couple of people, both the Because News staff and our friend Dave put in, you know, create a stand-up comedy routine inspired by Ali Hassan. So this was more generic. It was like, hello, everyone. My name is Ali Hassan. I'm a stand-up comedian. I've been doing this for a long time, and I've noticed some things about the world that I just have to talk about. For example, have you ever noticed how people always say, I'm going to be real with you? Like, what does that even mean? Are you normally not real with people? Are you a robot who's programmed to only be real with certain people? The irony of the robot using a robot, I mean, that was great to me. I love that. But it goes on for a bit. What they did at Because News, they changed one word. They said, create a stand-up comedy routine inspired by comedian Ali Hassan. They added the word comedian. So now it was a joke where it was like, yeah, you know, so back home in Montreal, I always, it added like my background into it. It found out from the internet, I have kids. And then it added like a, a thing about my kids. And so then you feel like, wow, I'm an unoriginal hack. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I could just, somebody could just take my information and create jokes for me. But at the end of the day, this is what joke writing has been for people who hire people to write their jokes. That's what it's been. Now it's a computer doing that. So, okay, maybe joke writers won't make their, you know, 50 bucks a a line or maybe they will. But the point about this is definitely, I think, worth exploring for many people. And just to get into the world of script writing, 
our friend did something very interesting. I think we were both kind of taken by this. Yeah, it's very unusual. I'll just give people a bit of background, then you can read yeah. the synopsis of the script. So a bunch of people, I, I think we mentioned on a previous podcast, Ali and I went to Dubai because we have a friend, Q, who lives there. So the, a group of us decided to go. Also surprised us. Best surprise I've ever That's gotten right. in my life. Oh, wow. Anyway, yeah. Yes. And so... You know, a bunch of us there, five people total, and we all live in different parts. Like one person lives in the uh, UAE and another person lives in, in the US and all kind of, a, you know, we're South Asian originally, but one guy is actually from Trinidad, you know, originally South Asian. Another guy grew up in Pakistan. So, and then in the Middle East. So basically that's kind of our group of friends and we're all approaching, uh, you know, our late forties. So that's kind of our truth, but then tell them what happened next, Ollie. Sure. So our friend Dave says, Write an example of a screenplay, or write a screenplay, I think he said, that relates to five middle-aged male friends with Trinidadian, Indian, and Pakistani backgrounds who met in Canada, but are now living in different places of the world. So ChatGPT says, sure, here's an example of, right, said screenplay. Title, Brothers in Arms, Act One, opening shot in Toronto, Canada. We see the five friends, Ravi, Raj, Salim, Tony, and Farooq. Right away, I was already blown away by the names. I got friends named Ravi and Raj. I got a buddy named Salim. My dad's name was Farooq. I don't know who the Tony was going to be. I think Asif was the Tony. Anyway, they're laughing. They're hanging out at a local park. They're all in their late 20s and early 30s, and they're having a good time together. Ravi, voiceover. We were all so young and carefree back then. Little did we know that our lives would take on such different paths. We see a montage of the friends hanging out together, playing sports, enjoying each other's company. We hear snippets of their conversations where they talk about their dreams and aspirations. Tony, voiceover. We were like brothers, always there for each other, no matter what. Act two, fast forward 20 years later. So I'll, you know, I'll just, one more line, just to give you an idea. We see the five friends now middle-aged, all living in different parts of the world. Ravi is a successful businessman in New York. Raj is a doctor in London. Salim is a teacher in Dubai. Tony is a musician in Trinidad. And Farooq is a stay-at-home dad in Pakistan. We all see them going on about their daily lives or going about their daily lives, but we can see that they are feeling a sense of emptiness and longing for the days when they were all together. So it goes on. It's quick act two, act three, act four, and... You know, two good things that happened here. The conflict that is inherent in any screenplay, in any play, film, show, does not come out. It's just a nice thing with a happy ending. And then there is a disclaimer at the bottom. Please note that this is just an example of a screenplay. And a real screenplay would require a more detailed and fleshed out story, characters, and dialogue. Also, it's important to note that writing a screenplay requires a specific set of knowledge of the format and conventions of screenwriting, and it is best done by professional screenwriters or those who are trained in the craft. Now, I would love to see something like that after a joke is input as well, right? I know comedians aren't considered masters of a craft. That is inherently part of the problem with comedy, that everyone thinks they're able to do it because you've heard people telling jokes in your home over Thanksgiving. Everybody's got a funny uncle, a funny mom, this kind of stuff. So this is inherently the problem with comedy. But, you know, for me, there was a couple of things. I was blown away by the names, uh, the, the title. The jobs. A little bit of the jobs, a little tiny bit of heart that comes out. I'm like, man, an AI created this. And I was also very comforted by that note at the end. So, you know, I, if that sticks around, I feel, I feel pretty good about some of the stuff happening here in AI. There is a problem with this, and I wonder if maybe this some of the limitations, not saying these limitations won't go away, but the idea of having conflict, a conflict is almost inherent to a screenplay. I don't write screenplays. I don't know anything about this stuff, but I watch a lot of movies, as we all you know. sure do. And yeah. TV shows and read books, you know, not as much. But conflict is inherent to what's going on. And so you think, why didn't it include that? Is that not something it's capable of? Similarly, I'm thinking with jokes – a joke is often funny when you're drawing connections that may be unexpected or are unplanned, right? Sometimes a joke is funny because you see where it's going and, and that's why you're laughing along with it. But sometimes it's it's the unexpected thing or, or a movie like a, a David Lynch movie or Twin Peaks where it's just so out there what's going on. You're like, how did he even think about this? I guess what I'm saying is I'm not sure it's quite there yet in terms of taking your job because of those things, right? Do you know what I mean? 
I do, I do, and there are more updates coming, and you can't help but wonder, will these, your, uh, you know, complaint? It's funny, because you were like, how did he think of these things? When you talk about a director, we might get to a point where you're like, did he think of these things? Mm. Or did an Scary. AI do it for him, right? So, yeah, I think the fact that those things aren't possible yet is a good thing. Once AI can create conflict and tension and these kind of real world situations, then the robots are taking over and we're all we're all dead. So, you know, hopefully that doesn't happen. But I'm going to talk to you about a guy named Edward Tian. And Edward, I'll mention more about him in a moment, but he's a partly a journalism student and a computer science student. The question put to him on a, on a show called Day Six on, on CBC Radio as well was, do you think that ChatGPT is capable of replacing print journalism. And his thoughts were that I don't think so. In terms of journalism, the core value is looking for the truth. And these technologies are great at regurgitating things they know. They're not good at finding the truth. They're not, they're not able to do things like fact-checking, reporting, collecting new information that doesn't exist already in the data that's, that's held in their, whatever you want to call them, training banks or their, you know. So... That's reassuring as well at this point. I do think in terms of just reporting factual information, right? You just want to know what's going on yeah. in the update on the war in Ukraine. And you're right. I want to hear about that in you know three paragraphs. It can do that. Beyond sure. that, you know, so the way I think of a news article, maybe it can get the first, like I said, first couple of paragraphs, the in-depth, you know, now you're going to interview this person and get there. You know, it probably cannot do that. And drawing these corollaries between various things, they probably can't. And the analysis of it. But I yeah. would say just describing facts, I'm sure it can do that, right? Wikipedia sure. can do that. And I, I would love to know what journalists think about AI. And again, if some of them feel like maybe it's a tool, this helps me. I don't like doing a fact-based article. I'll get the AI to do that. And then the part of my job that I enjoy, which is talking face to face to some with somebody, getting to you know, storytelling, right. the heart of the matter, challenging them yeah. on things that they're yeah. saying. Like doing that's an interview, do. how would it even do that? Like that's a, maybe a bridge too far right now. I'm not saying you couldn't, yeah. but yeah. Okay, makes sense. There's another very interesting thing about AI, and I uh, I don't know if you know that chat GPT is what I'm uh, what I mean there. It expressly prohibits arguments for fossil fuels. Do you know about this? So there was a guy, there is a guy, he's still alive, who, let me get his information here, Alex Epstein. Okay, now Alex Epstein is a philosopher and an energy expert. He received a refusal from ChatGPT after he asked the questions about fossil fuels. ChatGPT responded with this. I cannot answer this request as it goes against my programming to generate content that promotes the use of fossil fuels. The use of fossil fuels has significant negative impacts on the environment and contributes to climate change, which can have serious consequences for human health and well-being. Instead, I recommend considering the use of renewable energy uh, sources, such as solar, wind, hydroelectric. So this, this is interesting. Now, Alex Epstein, as a philosopher and an energy expert, you know, wants those debates out there, wants that to be out there so that debates can be not just like shut it down. They reached out to OpenAI, which runs ChatGPT, no, no response. But a very interesting ha thing happened. Old Elon Musk replies where he goes, there's great danger in training an AI to lie. Of course, he's going to think it's a lie because he recently was like, you know, December 2022, he was like, I hate to say it, but we need to increase oil and gas output immediately. Extraordinary times demand extraordinary measures. So now it's like, oh, you can't lie and say fossil fuels damage the client. So that's crazy. And so this is a very good point. And I'll get to it later when we talk about medicine. But in terms of can you trust the AI? Yeah, because of that, you know, if I type in, you know, is AI going to take over the world and going to become like Skynet from uh, Terminator 2? It'll be like, no. Skynet, yeah. You know? So, yeah, I had no idea about that. And the interesting thing is that, which I, people may not know, AI, okay, which is ChatGPT's, you know, c creators, San Francisco-based company, among the world's leading artificial intelligence labs, company was founded in 2015 by Elon Musk and Sam Altman, 
PayPal founder Peter Thiel, Amazon Web Services, Infosys, name it, like people, a bunch of people pledged a billion dollars for its development. And now you see Elon saying wow. there's danger. Into, yeah. So it's pretty wild. Now, Ali, you said you're going to get back to some of the issues around education. And I maybe yeah. this has something to do, as we've talked about before, you teach a course at Queen's University on stand-up yeah. comedy, but it's an actual university course. So have you encountered this problem in academia? Look, this is the problem here. I don't know if I've encountered <laughs> this problem. Maybe. Now, here's the thing. So I heard about ChatGPT in an email. I thought it was from the, the the college itself that I teach at. I thought it was from Queen's University. I go back and look and I'm like, oh, there's nothing. I realized it was one of those... Spam, yeah. Not really spam, but external emails. Yeah. Where in the same vein as something like we're looking for professors to teach classes in Germany at this new university, that kind of thing. So it's not directed at me, but it's semi-directed at me, you know, because I am a professor. Am I going to teach piano in Germany? No, I'm not. So you got the wrong guy. So it was spam in that case. It wasn't directed at me. And it had something to do with ChatGPT, beware professors, this kind of stuff. So that's when I started looking up, which is why I had a little bit of a, a leg up for Because News and, and one Because News, because I'd done a little bit of research on it. So, you know, this is an interesting thing. In, in May, this is in May, and I, my, you know, my thoughts are like, oh, we only started hearing about this in November, December. But in May in New Zealand, a student confessed to using AI to write their papers. And the student justified it as a tool, not unlike spell check, not unlike Grammarly. They said that I have the knowledge, I have the lived experience, I'm a good student, I go to all the tutorials, I go to all the lectures, I read everything we have to read, but I kind of felt like I was being penalized because I don't write eloquently, and I didn't feel that was right. So they don't feel like they're cheating because the student guidelines at their university state, and this is the key here, you're not allowed to get someone else to do your work for you, and GPT-3, this was an earlier version, GPT-3, isn't somebody else, it's a program. So this is how students are justifying it, right? So, you know, there's much written about this. This article in The Atlantic talks about the death of the college essay. And a couple of things about this, you know, number one, I have written to my students like, okay, let's do an essay. I want to know your opinion about this. I want to see, you know, tell me you researched some comedians. Uh, so we were looking at, for example, comedians whose jokes, quote unquote, backfired. They were called out. They were penalized in some way. They were canceled, that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's a method to that. It's a little bit of a longer story why I asked them to go into that. But I was also like, you know, tell me which comedians you looked at. Tell me the joke. Write out what your feelings are about the joke. Were the consequences fair? Was there a way to make the joke more palatable? So sometimes like, there's no way to make this palatable. Sometimes like, yeah, if they'd only done this, if they'd had the sensitivity, if they'd, you know. So I wrote in the essay, I go, listen, I want your opinions on this. I want this. I want that. Let's not chat GPT this thing with an exclamation mark. And one of my students said, I had to, I didn't get your jokes or I had to look up chat GPT. And I'm like, what? So, you know, in my mind, it's like, you know, you, you start thinking when you're at this level, the teacher level, and you're seeing all these articles, you're like, all oh, my students are using it. And then you're like, oh, there's some students who don't even know what it is yet. Right. Like, I mean, that's also a student who's in the world of drama and theater and a lot of backstage hands-on kind of tech theater, tech, uh, you know, technician type of thing helping mm -hmm, stage mm -hmm, theater shows. Mm -hmm. So maybe for her, it's not coming across her world, but yeah, I don't think all students are using it, but I think it's out there. And I think, yes, it could be used as a tool. Students, listen, man, when I was a student, are you kidding me? How lazy I was, I was going to use this thing to its full, until like I, my, you know, I got a smack on the wrist. I was going to use this for sure. And I think people don't understand, again, who haven't used this technology. If you type in, you know, on the chat GPT, hell, do an essay on a comedian who failed with a joke and how they could have rewritten it. You'll get an output. If I do that again, five minutes later, you'll get a different output. That's the whole mm -hmm. point. You can't, it's not going to be the same thing that you get. So it's like, just like if I wrote something and then my colleague wrote something, it's not going to be exactly the same, even if it's the same topic. That's the craziest part about it. It's not just copying and pasting. So that makes it difficult. And I wonder, you know, what the future holds for academia. Are we going to do more oral exams, which we do in like master's programs and PhDs, but we don't do it right. as much in, in undergrad. Maybe that's what's going to happen. Or essays like you write, write live where you sit in a room for like five hours and write an essay. I have three solutions mm -hmm, here mm -hmm. for teachers. Number one, 
in-class tests where everybody's sitting there. And, you know, this is it flies in the face of like, we need less testing. Testing creates anxiety for students. There's no testing in the real world. Unfortunately, if you are, you know, if there is a, a the college essay is going to be a thing of the past, in-class tests will be a great test of knowledge. And number two, video recorded essays, right? This is something where you're not looking at notes. You're just doing a five-minute video presentation. You record and you send it and you prove your knowledge of the subject. Number three is Edward Tien, who I mentioned earlier. So he's a Canadian. He's a Princeton student, computer science and journalism. He created an app called GPT-0, which can detect if somebody is using chat GPT. So, and he was jokingly saying it's true, but he got a laugh at it. Like other students were writing, like, get a life. You're a loser. Go get a girlfriend. And he was like, I was reading it with my girlfriend and we were both laughing at this stuff. So, but it's like, he's concerned about what chat GPT, because he is not just computer scientist, but a journalist as well. And, you know, his thoughts were how beautiful writing can be. And, and then, you know, there are parts of human writing that a machine can never do. And he said, if we all gravitate towards these apps, those beautiful that, you know, Jane Didion and Shakespeare, whoever you value as a great writer, all those people would never have existed if we had AI. So now going forward, do we not have any more, you know, legendary seminal writers? And one thing you could say is maybe it's, it's a challenge, right? So example, say you're thinking of a comedy routine about pizza and then you ask AI to do it. Now you know what the hacky jokes are that a chat GPT can come up with. Right. And now you're like, okay, how am I going to elevate this to the next level? Because maybe that's what this is. It's elevating things beyond the common discourse, beyond the, the hacky for you guys in comedy. Maybe that's, that's it. Right. It makes you yeah. have to think outside the box. Anyway, I'm being a bit positive about this. You're being very positive. It's very off brand, but thank you for that. I'm going to say one last thing, which is also positive, which is what my friend Dinesh said. You know, you use it as a tool. It's not your enemy. So if you look at it like, if I ask you to find three comedians and you just look on the internet and Google three comedians who failed or bombed, that's not cheating. That's using the internet. That's your resource, right? All of us, no matter what our age, will be like, yeah, thank God. If you had to do that with Encyclopedia Britannica, that was quite a chore. Like the internet is helping us. So you can look at it like that too. I remember when smartphones had first come out. You know, you can get email on your phone. I told a friend of mine, I told my buddy Manny, I go, I don't like this. I don't like being constantly reachable. I don't like the idea that somebody's going to be like, you know, because I used to laugh at a friend of mine who would be like, this is in the late 90s. And I had a phone and he would be like, Al, I called you. Where were you? Like the idea of like, I called you and you didn't answer. Where were you? You know, this was like the way it used to be. I was like, yeah, I was doing something else. I don't know what to tell you. I, I don't understand why you think when you call, there has to be. And now I was like, now we're here. Like people are going to email and they're going to be like, there's no excuse for somebody to wait 24 hours to get back and this kind of stuff. And Manny said, I think you're looking at it the wrong way. You're a comedian. You're a performer. Now you can book gigs while you're on holiday. You book a gig. You, you think of something. You want to reach out to somebody. You do it. You're in control. It's don't look at it like they're in control. They're finding you. You're in control of your own thing. And there are now things you can do that you couldn't do previously. And at that time, I remember, you know, you would get home at night and there would be like somebody on Facebook going like, hey, I need a headliner or I need a host for this show. And I would get home and already 20 people had put their name in it. I'm like, oh man, if I had seen that earlier in the day, maybe I would have got the gig. That's not how comedy works for me anymore. I'm not pitching myself. But at the time I was like, oh yeah, I can pitch myself for gigs. I can do this, you know? So I think it's the same thing for AI. This is your tool. This is not an enemy. You can use it for your benefit as my friend did to give himself a song so far it doesn't appear like it's necessarily coming for your jobs. Ali's positive message brought to you by Skynet. Oh. So 
Asif, there is much written about AI and medicine. In that Time magazine that I referenced, artificial intelligence, they say, can play games, read maps, Mm -hmm. and diagnose tumors. That stuck out because it's significantly more valuable than playing games. But anyway, on that note, what is AI capable? How prevalent is it in medicine? It's a really good question, and I learned a lot in doing my research for this episode. Let's talk about what I like to call the pie in the sky. Like, what is the ultimate goal? Well, and yeah. and that's interesting also that you did research for this article because you yourself, you're saying, did not know about everything AI is doing in medicine, even though you're in medicine. I didn't, okay. and it is a bit more prevalent in other specialties like radiology or pathology, and I'll talk about that, you know, in terms of diagnosing mm-hmm. tumors, as you said. And so those ones, it's because they deal with images and, you know, AI reading an image is whether the image is an x-ray or the image is a slide of a biopsy specimen. Those things are maybe a bit more easier than a complicated doctor-patient relationship. But I'll give you some examples from all these different things. But if you talk about the pie in the sky, there's a really good article from New England Journal of Medicine from a couple years ago. It's an editorial. And I'll just read you what they said. They said, what if every medical decision, whether made by an intensivist or a community health worker, was instantly reviewed by a team of relevant experts who then provided guidance if the decision seemed to miss? So, for example, patients with newly diagnosed hypertension would receive the medications that are known to be most effective rather than one that's most familiar to their prescriber. And I'm editorializing here in this editorial, Ali would say, oh, the one that's pushed by the drug companies, right? Because Ali's very distrustful of big pharma. You know what? I would say that. I would say that, and I am that. That's on brand. I would challenge normally, but you got it. You nailed it. You know, inadvertent overdoses and errors in prescribing would be largely eliminated, and patients with mysterious and rare ailments could be directed to renowned experts in the field related to that suspected diagnosis. And they're saying this would all happen instantaneously. So you can see that there is some power in this. And the idea with AI is AI has the ability to look at large amounts of data. You know, the problem with medicine is this increasing amount of information. You know, for example, the field of genetics, and that's very closely related to the field of child neurology, it's expanded so much. Back when I wrote my exams for neurology, like almost 20 years ago. In the dark ages. That's right. You'd have to memorize certain genes. And now I just tell my residents, you can't memorize all these genes. It's impossible. There's no way you'll know. And if you think, oh, I've memorized the cause of this particular type of symptoms, and it's this gene, you're probably wrong because you haven't read the most recent articles which says it's a different You'll never end up knowing that stuff. So you can think about the ways that AI can help this type of thinking. And we've talked in the podcast before about electronic medical records. There's so much information. And right now, say, for example, a pop-up will come up if I'm, you know, seeing a patient with diabetes, even though I don't see a patient with diabetes, will be like, remember to check a hemoglobin A1C regularly right? That's, it's just a reminder. But that's more just like a programmer program that in, you know, but what if the AI could learn over time and look through the chart and be like, you know, I see you order A1Cs every third visit, maybe you should do it every second visit. Or they can look and say, actually, they've been on this many medicines. So maybe you should try this medicine. And they can actively learn and analyze the chart over time. You know how when you do a Google search, it will do an autocomplete, right? If the AI could learn from my charting. It can start to auto-complete, like, oh, you're seeing a patient with migraine. You usually recommend this, this, this. How about I just auto-populate what you normally say, right? And then they're like, oh, but you actually mentioned that this patient has a headaches waking them up at nighttime. So you usually do an MRI in those cases, even though it sounds like migraine, and it would automatically do that. So it can help you with this electronic medical record. Okay, as you talk about all this, I'm getting a feeling for what the challenges of AI will be because of things we've talked about on this podcast, like various biases and things like that. If it's learning from people with biases, it's also adopting this. Oh, listen, Ali Ali is totally spoiling the the, the latter part of the podcast. Let's stick with the positive. This podcast would be on that. Yeah, you're so smart, Ali. Yeah, exactly. So we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a second. But listen, What AI is good at is large, shallow data. It can look at millions of pieces of information. It can pull the health records from like, if everybody was on the same EMR, a whole HMO in the States or a whole province in Canada and analyze it and be like, you know, people in your province, in your area tend to have a higher rate of, say, hypertension. Make sure you're checking for blood pressure. It can analyze all that data. Whereas what humans are good at and doctors are good at 
analyzing one specific person and diving deep down into that specific person and being like, okay, this is you, you've experienced this, 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 you have a family history of this. So if you can imagine the combination of those two things, the doctor going in a deep dive with a patient and going really thoroughly through their specific situation, and then the AI on top of that looking at the population level, right? And when you think about that, you can be like, yeah, that makes sense. Let me give you some examples, Ali, of how it's being used, okay? So we talked about, use asked about tumors, and, and radiology is the field where you actually have seen a big boom in AI. And there's an article I'll link to, it's published in Nature and BBC News. Basically, it's an international team that looked at diagnosing breast cancer on x-rays. And they did an AI algorithm, and it actually outperformed radiologists in reading mammograms. It detected tumors better, and so it, it identified tumors and it didn't make any false positive. It didn't think something was a tumor when it was actually just like maybe an error or a part of the lung. This is also problematic because I don't know much about much, but I know radiologists are already on the defensive because of how easy their work is perceived to be by the rest of the medical field. And now a computer can do your work. Trouble. Okay. Well, yeah. And, and to be fair, the protocol for reading breast mammograms is that it's not just read by one radiologist, it's read by two radiologists. So the algorithm was better than one radiologist, but it performed the same as two doctors working together. So a logical extension of this could be like, okay, you actually don't need two doctors anymore. You need the AI plus a doctor, and that's enough to screen a mammogram. So that's very interesting. And then similarly in pathology, this was a study done from the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, and they reported an AI-powered diagnostic algorithm could identify cancer in pathology slides 92% of the time, and a pathologist was 96% of the time. And if you combine the two, 99.5% accuracy. So that sounds exciting, right? So it's acting as a double check for the pathologist and the radiologist. So that, that's good. Another one that's related to neurology and cardiology is this was done through some Harvard associated hospitals. They were screening patients' medical records for atrial fibrillation. Do you know what that is? I do. My dad and his ill health introduced us to atrial fibrillation, but I think we can explain it to our listeners who wouldn't know. Yeah, it's basically a very abnormal, irregular heartbeat in the top part of the heart of the atrium, and that can predispose people to strokes. That's probably why people get so concerned about it, and you need to go on blood thinners if it's detected. So basically, it screened their electronic medical record for people who were at risk for it, and then it would tell you, oh, by the way, maybe you should do an ECG, heart rate test, to make sure they don't have it. And they had very accurate detection for those patients. Interestingly, there's an AI developed by a Canadian company called Blue Dot, okay? This company, it's going to be quite obvious what I'm talking about. They basically had early detection of unusual cases of pneumonia looking at big data in a certain province in China in the end of 2019. It detected the signal of SARS, COVID-19, a week before the WHO issued a public notice about the virus. And the WHO leaned on that AI for its information? No, I mean, no, it, it was, it was independent. No, oh, it it was, was independent. But the oh, proof it was, was ignored. <laughs> well, okay. yeah, I mean, it is a private company doing this, so I'm not sure how much it was looked at. Honestly, I, I don't know, but it's interesting, right? Another example is in surgery or endoscopy, like you get a colonoscopy, you can train AI to view thousands of videos of a procedure. So let's just say colonoscopy. And the idea is the AI, in a sense, is looking over your shoulder doing it because it's viewed thousands of colonoscopies, right? And it'd be like, maybe just don't do that. Or maybe, hey, did you remember to look at that? And that's the AI's voice. The sales are going nowhere, nowhere fast. Hold on. And they have been using this for endoscopists. And some AIs can predict when they biopsy a polyp or a lesion, if it's going to be cancerous or not. Better predicting than just the gastroenterologist or surgeon taking a guess based on their experience. Another thing that we can look at in neurology is EEG tracings, which are brainwave tracings. And AI has been used to predict using brainwave tracings which patients will recover and which patients will not in patients who are in a coma. 
So, you know, it's pretty exciting stuff. And you can see what's the commonality with all these. A lot of it is based on radiographs, pictures, pathology slides. The EEG is a tracing, so it's all computerized. So it's able to analyze that, even analyzing videos of colonoscopies. That makes sense. You can imagine, though, AI trying to be involved in the doctor-patient relationship when you're seeing your psychiatrist for depression or anxiety. Like, it seems it falls apart, I think, after that. So I'm not quite sure for some of those other specialties it would work, but you can see especially ones that have a very big visual or database component, there's a lot of advantages. I am curious to see how doctors themselves are reacting to this, but I'm sure you're about to tell us that very soon. Right. So it's interesting. Like I said, it's not quite there with a lot of specialties yet. Overall, I think doctors will accept this if it's an assistive tool and not a replacement tool, right? And I think if we think about it like that, but there are some criticisms, as you said. Some people, there's this person, Ezekiel Emanuel, who's a professor of medical ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. I'll link to his article. He said that people who are anticipating a huge revolution in healthcare, they're going to be disappointed because you still have to change human behavior, right? So we've talked about this before on the podcast. What do you need to do to be healthy? Exercise, eat right, don't smoke, don't drink. Do people do those things? Yeah. And behavior has to change in the healthcare system and for physicians, nurses, other specialists as well. So, you know, will that happen? I don't know. But I think we've talked again, we talked about electronic medical records and burnout and the amount and volume of data that's going on is very concerning to people. If AI can help us to manage that data, it might actually prevent burnout. So instead of the AI replacing us, it actually may help us stay in our jobs longer. But you mentioned there are potential problems, right? So first of all, if a system is poorly designed, it can misdiagnose, which is scary. Another thing you mentioned is bias, right? And if your biases are incorporated in the data in a medical chart, then it will just learn that. We say garbage in, garbage out, right? If you, what if you've inputted? So I'll give you an example that's unrelated to medicine. In 2016, there was a Wisconsin legal case. They used an AI-driven risk assessment system for criminal recidivism, your chance of committing a crime again. And it was used to sentence a man to six years in prison. And then the judge basically said, yeah, the risk assessment tool says you're very high risk to offend. And the defendant challenged it saying that the AI software, which he was not allowed to examine, and I'll get to that in a second, violated his rights to be sentenced on accurate information. And in fact, that ruling was overturned. Because, I mean, let's just, I don't know anything about this case, and it's probably for the best, but let's assume this person was a person of color from a disadvantaged community. And you're tying that in. And it's basically saying something like, oh, you're black and lots of criminals are black. So that's why you go to, you know, if it's based on extremely flawed data like that, it is going to be biased. And so we have to be very, very careful about that. Another thing that I think Ali is going to be very concerned about is who stands to gain from AI, right? And if it's an HMO in the US, it's profit. How can we make as much money as possible? And in Canada, where we have a government-funded healthcare system, they're trying to save costs, right? But cost savings is an issue. And so if the government or, say, the HMO is the one creating an AI, they're like, you know, we definitely want best patient care, but how can we minimize costs? And if you don't see what's going on, you just get the recommendation from the AI, oh, you should do this. What if it's learning, oh, an important thing I need to figure out is cost cutting as opposed to best patient care. So it is a bit scary. The other thing is, is something called the black box problem. These algorithms are designed to learn and improve their performance over time. So sometimes even the designers can't be sure how an AI arrived at a recommendation or diagnosis because it's learning actively over time. So you don't know what's going on inside. So anyway, it is difficult. And there is even some criticisms of some of these studies with those high percentages of, say, identifying pathology slides and identifying a cancer in pathology slides or identifying the cancer in, in x-rays, that it's a bit biased. And basically, when the researchers are doing the study, if there's any data that doesn't fulfill their predetermined hypothesis that the AI is going to be better, they kind of exclude that data and they're cherry picking data. That has been an accusation of some of these AI studies. So there is definitely some concerns. 
What's the sentiment from, you mentioned radiologists and pathologists earlier. Are they viewing it as, as we said in the first section, as a tool that they can be helped by? Or is it more of a threat, like this thing is going to take my job? But is there any, any of that sentiment? I think it seems encouraging to radiologists and pathologists, though these things aren't really widespread in use. So it's a bit hard to know what will happen when it becomes more widespread use. But you know, some studies have found that a combined AI-human performance couldn't surpass the performance of AI. There are some studies that suggest that, which is concerning, right? When we look at some clinicians, let's look at a procedure like the colonoscopy. They actually suggest that AI may be better for less experienced people. So when you have enough experience, you don't benefit as much as more junior people. So an example is in medical training, right? When you're doing your residency, AI could be another teacher. And I think if you frame it like that, as opposed to telling the surgeon who has 20 or 30 years of experience that the AI knows better than them, that's probably not going to be accepted very much. But I think, you know, for junior people, people just learning, it might be quite useful. Like, again, how many times have you like, oh, I need to fix something in my house. I'm going to look on a YouTube video to take a look at that. I'm not saying people should Once. <laughs> I'm not saying medical students should YouTube how to do a colonoscopy and then try and do it. But if you have this very sophisticated AI coaching you through it, that is something. Don't do it if you're a med student. But if you're like a electrician or something and you're not going to lose your medical license, give it a shot. You know? Okay, so that's our episode for today. Let us know what you thought about this AI issue. There's so much going on. Like, it, it's really exploded in the past few months. Everybody's talking about it. Very curious to get your thoughts on it. Have you had any experiences in healthcare or otherwise? Has it written a script for you to pitch to a, a movie studio? Let us know what's going on. Ali, anything you got going on in March, February? Yeah, sure. I hit the road. I'll be in Calgary in February. I'll be out west Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta in March, and of course, Canada Reads on CBC television, radio, and the internet is taking place. I know I've been meeting some people at shows who are very, very keen readers, keen to read at least four or five, all five. Of oh my books. gosh. I just finished one of the books on Canada Reads. I read a book this year. It's a graphic novel, but still, I read Ducks by Kate Beaton. Excellent. It's about her autobiographical experience working in the oil sands in Alberta. Great. Amazing. My friend lent it to me. Thought it was amazing. So listen, I'm one down. So we'll see. How many to go? Are there some to go? Four more to go. I don't know. Will I get around to those? I don't know. You pour through neurology textbooks, but you can't read beautiful fiction. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, because I'm spending all my time, I feel guilty reading for pleasure when I'm like, I should really read this for work, you know? Okay. Well, maybe you're a better doctor for it. Well, thanks for listening right in. Get in touch if you are in the medical field, if you are not in the medical field, but we'd love to know. And if you'd like us to not mention your name or, you know, write to us anonymously, you could do that. But I'd be interested to see how people in the medical field are reacting to AI. I mean, I guess it depends what field you're in. You know, some people would be like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. And other people are like, they're phasing me out. Yeah, drvcomedian at gmail.com. Also on social media, drvcomedian on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are everywhere. And remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only. And they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals or your AI for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.